Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. And this is episode 17. We're 1963. 1963. And we're a bunch of numbers here. And we're watching Eight and a Half. This will be uh, our first Italian film and probably the most avant-garde film we've tackled on this show so far. You know, I just realized episode 17, half 17 is eight and a half. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's that's freaky. Yeah, you're right. Yay. <laughs> Yay okay. math. Yay math. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Eight and a Half is an interesting movie, which we'll get to here in a few minutes. Sure. And it's an Italian film. Yep. So give us a rerun real quick of what was happening in America, and then let's shift over to Europe here. Okay. So just as a recap from our 1962 discussion from last season, Mm -hmm. currently the American film industry is still competing with television, other inexpensive forms of entertainment. People are going on vacations, having yard games. Interstate highways up and running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be interstate. Or at the very least, Route 66. I forget when that all happens. That's right. I don't know the timing. But anyways, lots of options. Lots of options for entertainment, hobbies, and all kinds of things. So they're competing against all that. The production code is still around, but its authority is waning. That's the code that governs, you know, content-wise. It would eventually be replaced by the MPA rating system in 1968. We all know and love. Yes. But yes, and that's only about five years away. And Hollywood is in it is in the early stages of New Hollywood, which would begin in earnest with Bonnie and Clyde, some critics say, in 1967. A lot more experimentation untraditional stories, things that are a little unsatisfying. A little bit more violent, violent a little bit yeah. more salacious. A little more, bit more more. A bit more <laughs> more of everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I guess you could say that. But here, again, the early stages of that, and while studios are still trying to figure out what their new normal is, young audiences, particularly college students, and you know, tw- your 20s and 30s somethings, they're discovering fresh cinematic ideas in Japanese and European movies. And hence... We're over to Italy for this movie. That's right. So let's talk about Italy. We'll try to do a rapid fire history of Italy here. We're covering, you know, since we've been covering mostly Hollywood movies, but it's it's very worth watching some foreign films, part just to see different ways different cultures use film. And we have not much on this this podcast outside of, I guess, Nosferatu and Trip to the Moon. Yes, yeah. which are also early enough that they feel countercultural d- just from the era. Exactly. Age. Exactly. But like I said, we're going to go through the decades here really quickly, like what we normally do over the course of several episodes. So I'll try to keep this as quick as possible. And thanks to a couple of YouTube channels for helping me kind of organize this. Uh, I didn't know that much about Italian film history before yeah. I started looking into this. And I felt the Wikipedia page was a bit cluttered. So there's a couple of YouTube videos that I'll put in the show notes that really helped me put this together. Italy is known as a preeminent filmmaking country, and it's won more best foreign film Oscars than any other nation. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Now, I assume it's still quite the powerhouse, isn't it? I believe so, yes. Okay. I mean, I don't know what the current standings on European filmmaking, yeah. like who has the most prestigious, but I would assume it's still pretty prestigious. But we're just going to go up to 1963 here, yes. since that's when our movie comes out. But we'll start back in during the 1910s. During this period, Italian film was mostly known internationally for its epic films, typically set in classic Roman and Greek settings. Which would make sense. Which would make sense, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're like, we do Westerns, they're like, oh, we got a lot of history here, too. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. The 1914 film Capri 
Ferreria. I don't speak Italian, so I may butcher some names here, but the, which was directed by Giovanni Pastroni, was the first movie played at the White House in the White House lawn, apparently. Wow. And uh, it is credited for influencing D.W. Griffith and Cecil B. DeMille. Was, We've mentioned a number of times on here. Yes. Again, epic, lots, cast of thousands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, Martin Scorsese says that this director, Pastroni, did that before Cecil B. DeMille became famous for it. Oh, wow. So, Also during this period in this decade in 1910s, there's a genre called Italian Futurism, which is said to have influenced German Expressionism that came after it. Though, unfortunately, most films from this particular movement have been lost. Hmm. Following World War I, Italian films stagnated due to economic pressures and rising censorship from the Mussolini government. Oh, he got the trains running, but not the film. <laughs> but not, not right away, at least. Production dropped from 350 films made in 1921 to 60 made in 1924. Wow. And then all the way down to two in 1931. That's that's. That's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah. The, the film companies were all had basically gone bankrupt. So at that point, the government made some investments to prop up the industry, and they started making, of course, propaganda films. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> that's, we're that's, fascists. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Following World War II and the fall of the fascist regime, uh, Italian film is dominated by neorealism. Uh, this is a period where Italy is going through a lot of rebuilding. Their economy has been tanked. And so neorealism really focused on the struggles of poor and working class people. It's also marked by techniques designed to keep production costs low, but also having an interesting effect on the film. For example, they would tend to film on location instead of using sets. And they would use untrained actors who gave pretty raw performances. So this is an interesting style. That'd be interesting to see with something like that. Yeah. A classic example of this would be the bicycle theme. I was going to ask if that was from this era, but I knew that's a very realistic realism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And neorealism would be, it would influence a lot of European films uh, after this. It was very influential in the French New Wave, which would come again, 50s, 60s, okay. if I remember right. And it would have long lasting effects. There's a filmmaking style developed in the 90s called uh, Dogma 95. Interesting title. Okay. Yeah. It's a little uppity. These these uh, directors who are very much into the like, no, you need to try to make it as natural as possible yeah. and use you like gorilla filming, but better. Basically, like use as little uh, fake light, you know, just use as much natural lighting as possible yeah. and have raw performances about being real and that kind of thing. So it's a whole thing. Now, there was an economic upswing in the mid-1950s uh, going into the 60s, which inspired a variety of film movements that really revitalized the Italian film industry. And I mean, neorealism certainly did, but this helped it branch out into a lot of interesting genres, one of them being Commedia Italiana, which is literally translated comedy in the Italian way, uh, which focuses on middle and upper class characters and satires of manners and spicy social issues, okay. such as, you know, marriages and, and, and infidelity and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which this movie has none of. <laughs> and a lot of it. Anyways, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not really considered, well, I guess it's certainly probably influenced by Commedia all'italiana, if, if it is. Yeah. But anyway, uh, another thing going on during this period, Hollywood on the Tiber, or Tiber, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but, that's a, but apparently it's a river in Italy. So yeah. Excuse us, we're uncultured. Uh, but this is... Uh, <laughs> that's why we're watching these movies. Exactly. We're, tr- we're trying to get better. Uh, but this, is, this refers to a time when several Hollywood blockbusters were produced in Rome, including Roman Holiday, which we named dropped last episode, mm-hmm. Ben-Hur, and Cleopatra. 
More on that one in a minute. The presence of Hollywood-style filmmaking in Italy influenced their own sword and sandal films like Hercules. <laughs> and all the many sequels, right? Yes. Like Hercules yes. versus the Moon Men. Yeah, like, which you've probably seen on Mr. Science Theater 3000. Uh, you've but, seen it at all. Yeah. <laughs> but Hercules, that was from 1958. And again, inspired a number of sword and sandal films like that. And also the, the famous spaghetti westerns, uh, most famously such as A Fistful of Dollars from 1964, the Sergio Leone films. So this is interesting. So we went over there and kind of like influenced how they did things. Yeah. Again, the kind of the blockbuster. And spaghetti westerns are supposed to take place in America. Yeah. In the American West, even though they well, were filmed, filmed in Italy. Italy. Yeah. 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 Um, but the third movement from this period I wanted to talk about is post-neorealism. Apparently, this is not a widely used phrase. There are some scholars who use it, but it does seem to well describe films made by directors who moved on from neorealism to explore existential and internal topics less focused on social issues than neorealism. I meant to mention that reading about neorealism kind of reminded me of some of the films from the 30s, which like to focus on social issues Mm -hmm. and were kind of hard-hitting kind of stuff. But anyway, post-neorealism moves on from that. Directors who were influenced by some of those ideas but became less focused on the social stuff and more of a, like this movie is actually a pretty good example. Fellini was one of these directors who... Was he was he neorealism to begin with in his first era? Yes, and his, his first phase was neorealism. In fact, I did, I realized when I was researching this, I had seen one previous film, which is kind of like on the border between the neorealism and post-neorealism, that's called The Strata okay. from 1954, if I remember right. It's probably more neorealist than not because it does feature working class poor people struggling to make a living kind of stuff but it is less strictly like it has some more impressionistic ideas that would more characterize neorealism it's interesting that film did in some ways what like art did it started you know went from realism into this sort of impressionism and then into abstraction yeah 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 it follows a similar trajectory all right so that was kind of our quick rundown of italian film from 1910 to 1960s Mm mm-hmm uh, I now know everything I need. Uh, <laughs> but we're in 1963. So what other things are making waves here in the film world? Sure. Let's talk about the top grossing and Oscar winners. The top grossing film in Hollywood of the year was Cleopatra, though this is a historical uh, interesting Also filmed one. in Italy. Also filmed in Italy. But historically, this is an interesting one because the staggering production costs of this film made it the only instance of a film being the highest grossing film of a year while still losing money. <laughs> wow. It nearly bankrupted 20th Century Fox, which would only be res- rescued two years later with the massive success of The Sound of Music. Wow. They spent a lot of money on this thing then. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, some star egos were a big factor, and I'm sure there's a lot you could read about how the production costs went away. Of, I mean, a lot of films this year, 2023, are also kind of experiencing some of that, in part because a lot of films from this year were filmed during COVID restrictions. Yeah. Their budget costs went higher, and they're having trouble like kind of meeting that. Mm-hmm. And even though they're making millions of dollars, uh, yeah, it's a tricky business. Okay, so that was super popular, but didn't make money. What sort of Oscar? Well, it made money, just didn't well, make mu- enough. Enough, yes. <laughs> but the Oscar winners for the year, Best Picture went to Tom Jones. Best Director also went to Tony Richardson for that movie. That's a British film that I am not at all familiar with, to be honest. Tom Jones. Based on a book, I believe? It might be. Yeah, yeah I think it is. Yeah. Best Actor went to Sidney Poitier for Lilies of the Field. Notably, that he is the first black actor to win an Oscar for a leading role. 
Hattie McDonald, if I remember right, had won Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Gone with the Wind. Okay. Um, but anyway, Best Sydney Poitier won Best Actor this year. And Best Actress went to Patricia Neal for HUD, another film I am not familiar HUD, with. HUD, yeah. Yeah, there are, our other nominations for this week's episode were not those Oscar winners, but there were a couple other ones that I think have stood out more in public consciousness. One is The Great Escape, mm-hmm. which probably we might have gone with if it had if I really I really wanted to get a European film in yeah. here, and this was a good time which for is it. Good, which is a good, good choice. Yeah. yeah, The Great Escape is a pretty quintessential uh, prisoner of war film. Yeah. And then How the West Was Won, which I had nominated last year as a technicality and as like also included as a nomination this year because I would like to see that sometime on like a, a big screen because that yeah. was a, a Cinerama thing. So it has a huge film ratio. But anyway, uh, I think it was released in Britain for some reason in 1962 and in America in 1963. But, but we'd just done a Western. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Our audience nomination from Nathan Marchand this episode had Jason and the Argonauts. Which has a lot of interesting uh, Harryhausen sort of stuff going on. Exactly. I and I, I was kind of tempted, at, of all of Nate's nominations, that was probably the one I was most tempted to go with because I've been curious about that one. I don't know a lot of, about Ray Harryhausen except to know special effects people love him. Of course. Again, a Greek setting. That's true. That's so, true. Yeah. And I think Tom Hanks actually said Jason and the Argonauts is his favorite movie. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Other notable events, just real quick. This year marks the film debuts of Alan Alda, Peter Fonda, Lynn Redgrave, Kurt Russell, and Donald Sutherland. All right. Nice. All right. So that's the history rundown. What is this movie, Eight and a Half, Tim? (laughs) That is a good question. (laughs) But Eight and a Half was directed by Federico Fellini, a preeminent Italian director. It stars Marcello Mastriani. (laughs) I'm probably not saying that right, but he worked with Fellini on several movies. There's also a number of other actors in the cast here, but unless you're really familiar with Italian films, which if you're a casual movie fan, I'm guessing not. (laughs) Um, I'll just say, go look that up. But this avant-garde surrealist comedy drama centers around an Italian film director named Guido Anselmi, who is trying to overcome director's block and figure out what he wants to say with his new movie. He has been staying at a spa to try to recover from his anxieties, but his producer and crew are eager to get moving on production, so they relocate to his hotel to try to get his creative juices flowing. Still, Guido moves from distraction to distraction, spending time first with his mistress, then with his wife, and pondering childhood memories as he tries to figure out what he wants with his film and with his life. Now, that is a very thumbnail sketch of the story for this. Well, I just like the beginning here, the avant-garde surrealist comedy drama. That <laughs> tells you a lot right there. <laughs> it does. There is a lot of moving in and out of reality uh, with the way this this movie tells its story. Um, Which you can only summarize so much of without Exactly. Losing, yeah. It'd get bogged down. I couldn't really give you a play-by-play. It's best to just focus on the big picture yeah. for the summary of this. But this is a black and white film. It seems like a lot of Italian films from this era are in black and white, probably because, again, I would suspect it's cheaper to do. Mm-hmm. Um, also, highly suspect that they're not, they realize like, we can't compete with what Hollywood movies are doing at this time and color stuff. So they focus on something else. I think at some point during the 60s or 70s, they do much more color film. But this was still black and white, and it works for the story, too. Again, very artsy. Yeah. Um, the screen ratio is kind of common widescreen, close to 16 by 9, 1.85 over 1. The length is 138 minutes, or 2 hours and 18 minutes. Uh, 
The screenplay is by Federico Fellini, who, again, it being about a director, it is very, it feels almost semi-autobiographical. Yeah, I think it is semi-autobiographical. At least the, the initial idea for, he, he himself was stuck on what to make his next movie about, and that himself inspired, oh, I'll make a movie about a director who's stuck trying to make a movie. Make a movie. Yeah. Other uh, people who worked on the screenplay include Tullio Pinelli, Ennio Falanio, and Brunello Rondi. Forgive me if anyone here speaks Italian and all those names I just butchered. The score is by Nino Rota. It features several well-known classical pieces. Nino Rota apparently is a pretty prolific composer for film. He would go on to compose the scores for the first two Godfather movies. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he would compose for both Italian and Hollywood films. Interesting. So yeah, he seemed like a very interesting guy that Fellini really enjoyed working with. All right, so we know that this is kind of a, a well-known Italian film. At the time, was it well-received? The internet sources I looked at really did not talk about the, the box office results at all. Uh, <laughs> so it was really unclear to me how financially successful it was. However, it clearly did not hurt Fellini's career. So it did, it did fine. I mean, and it can't have been that expensive a film to make. I would suspect not. There's no giant special effects and not really a cast of thousands here. Maybe a spaceship. <laughs> uh, well, we don't even ever see a spaceship. No, we, we just see, see the scaffolding. scaffolding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it almost doesn't matter in some ways because the critics love this thing immediately, both in Italy and internationally. The Italian critic Alberto Moravia called it among the best of all Fellini's works to date. Another Italian critic, Giovanni Grazzini, said, The osmosis between art and life is amazing. It will be difficult to repeat this achievement. And Roger Ebert added it to his great movies list, calling it the best film ever made about filmmaking. In Italy, it was nominated for nine of the prestigious Nastro d'Argento Film Awards, and it won six of them, Best Director, Screenplay, Story, Producer, Cinematography, and Score. And here in the U.S., it was nominated for five Academy Awards and won for Best Foreign Film and Best Costume Design in the Black and White category. And currently, it has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 60 reviews. So it was loved pretty universally back then. And um, now. And, and now, yes, it's true. And now. Did it influence films after that? Or was it just basically like, oh, great film. And now we got to do our own thing because no one can do anything with this. <laughs> I think it was pretty influential. Direct influences. It was adapted as a 1982 Broadway musical called Nine. <laughs> <laughs> Which was revived. They rounded up. <laughs> they rounded up. Uh, which was revived in 2003 with Antonio Banderas and adopted into a 2009 film starring Daniel Day-Lewis, who we've seen on this podcast yes. before, with co-stars including Nicole Kidman, Judy Dench, and Penelope Cruz. Fellini biographer Tulio Kezik listed several films that Eight and a Half inspired, including the American films Mickey One, starring Warren Beatty, Alex in Wonderland, starring Donald Sutherland, All That Jazz, starring Roy Scheider, and Stardust Memories, which is a film directed by Woody Allen. And its fans include Francois Truffaut, David Lynch, Terry Gilliam, and Martin Scorsese. The latter two have listed it as one of their all-time favorite films. Which I can completely understand. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though. I've not watched a ton of Scorsese, but he seems less surreal than Gilliam, substantially. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. But you can still love it without influencing how you make stuff. But sure. It was, just, it was just interesting. Sure, sure. And we can go through some more awards that uh, this thing has gotten. It's been included on the Italian Ministry of Cultural Heritage, 100 Italian Films to be Saved, which is a list of 100 films that have changed the collective memory of the country between 1942 and 1978. Kind of like our own National Thumb Registry, yeah. I assume. 
The British Film Institute's magazine Sight and Sound regularly polls movie critics and directors on the greatest films of all time. This film ranked fourth and fifth in the critics' poll in 1972 and 1982, respectively. It ranked second in the directors' poll in 1992 and 2002, and in 2002, the critics ranked it as number eight. And in their 2012 poll, critics ranked this film as number 10 and directors ranked it at number four. So it's, it's held its spot. In the for, top for top like 50, 60 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's impressive. It's interesting to me. The, the directors love it even more than the critics. Yeah, it's what it seems like. The Village Voice's 1999 poll of the top 250 best films of the century ranked it a bit higher, or a bit lower, actually, at number 112. But Entertainment Weekly's 2014 list, the 100 greatest movies of all time, ranked it at number 35. On the BBC's 2018 list of 100 greatest foreign language films, it ranked at number seven. And this is a weird one to me. <laughs> Apparently, at some point, the Vatican did a compilation of the best 45 films made before 1995. Why? They didn't rank them, apparently, but it's on that list, which is a little strange because it's not. this film is not exactly complimentary toward the Catholic Church. No. Well, what else is on that? Do you, have, you know anything else that's on that list? Um, I, I don't remember. I just want to see what kind, of, what kind of things they're picking. Uh, I mean, there are some there are some movies you've heard of before, okay. and, the, and there are some other European ones that you may not have. Okay. But, but most of them... Is like, okay, I've heard of that, I've heard of that, I've heard of that. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Un film che potesse essere utile un po' a tutti, che aiutasse a seppellire per sempre tutto quello che di morto ci portiamo dentro. A che punto avrò sbagliato strada? So, anyways, tons of accolades, tons of love. Um, but what did we what think? What did we exactly? What do we think about this? Had you known anything about this movie going into it? I had seen the name as much as anything when you're like browsing through a film a library. Yeah. Particularly, I think this was at uh, Regent. You know, they they all, sometimes will put the numbers before you get to the A's. If oh they, yeah. If they're listening alphabetically, they pull the numbers first. So it kind of stands in out and is like eight and a half. What does what the heck does that mean? Which I guess I didn't even explain yet. In case you're wondering, the movie itself does not explain what eight and a half means. No, we got done. We're like, why is it called that? It's literally Federico Fellini's. He counts up the numbers of movies that he's made. He had made like seven and a half, like basically. Before yeah, this. before this. Yeah, between the half's like a short or yeah, a, but a couple of short films, some that he had co-directed. Anyway, he, the way he counted up, it's he had previously done seven and a half, so this one is number eight and a half. Which I saw one reviewer is like, well, it's kind of like a composer, you know, just a symphony number five yeah. or whatever. Which I said that to Janelle, my uh, music playing wife, and she was like, yeah, but films are less abstract than music. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it makes sense in a meta sort of way. Yes, yes. But I'd heard the name a fair amount. I uh, had forgotten that I had seen a Fellini until I started rereading. It's like, oh, La Strada, I recognize that name. But it was mostly just, yeah, I'd been meaning to see more Fellini for a long time. I think I'd heard of it just because it's one of those titles that you're like, what? You know? <laughs> yeah. I, for some reason, my head, I, I always thought it had to do with guns for some reason. Mm, like a caliber Caliber sort of or something, yeah. Interesting. I don't know why, just... I didn't know it was going to be like this at all. So, <laughs> Indeed. All right, so let's hear what we thought immediately after watching it. All right. I knew going into this that it would be uh, an experience. All I knew from Wikipedia was surrealist comedy drama. I'm like, oh boy, European films, that could be almost anything. And it was. It was an interesting stream of consciousness experiment of a director trying to make a movie, and you're also seeing kind of some of his mind's eye of what he's envisioning, except you never quite get a full picture of any of it, I feel like. 
interesting thought experiment, but I need more processing time to really say much of anything substantive. What do you got, Nick? Yeah, it it was compelling and confusing, and it would constantly like put stakes in the ground to kind of help you follow it because it could have mm-hmm. gone. And it even kind of tells like you should give more. You know, one of the characters like give us more to go with. But yeah, I can't I can't figure out. And kept changing the watch it whether it's saying some really meaningful things or whether it's just being clever. <laughs> and I haven't figured out. Yeah, I need processing time. And we thought the prisoner was weird. <laughs> I feel like being Sam the Eagle and making some really gruff, grumpy remark about no solid moral content. <laughs> and I'm a little wondering, what did I just watch besides a guy feeling guilty about ten affairs? That's all I got. <laughs> okay. I feel like I could understand some of the message being communicated. I mean, not really, but... More than I really understood the story, if I had to, I think I could give kind of a synopsis of the ideas. I could not tell you what happened in this movie. (laughs) Um, That's a really good way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, I wish wish there had been more distinguishing... I don't know, I feel like if I watched it again, which I would not, but if I did... I would be able to follow the storyline better. I think I'd be able to pick out what was story and what wasn't. Yeah, in some ways it almost is a set of ideas in search of a story, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Well, folks, as you can see, sometimes our instant reactions are us just trying to recover from having watched a movie. (laughs) It doesn't help, though. It tends to be late at night by the time we're done. But this movie is one of those that the way it's put together, it really, an instant reaction is not fair to it in some ways. I mean, it is a reaction, but it needs time to unwind and sit there for a little bit. It does. It really does. So having done that for about a week, Tim, let's talk about some of the things that we we noticed, liked, would recommend about it. I guess, first off, what's very obvious, it's very impressionistic. Yes. It kind of freely, without sometimes hardly telling you, moves between the present, the past, and dream, wants, desire. Yeah, I I guess at some point Fellini described it as exploring the, quote, the three levels on which our minds live, the past, the present, and the conditional, the realm of fantasy. And I think the hardest thing when you start watching it at first is that there is no transitional, you know, there's no whoosh sound or... It's not an obvious flashback. No, it just moves and you're like, wait, where are we? Or when are we? Or what are we? Yeah, this is like the opposite of the classical Hollywood style Mm -hmm. where you're very purposely trying to convey a ongoing sense of reality. Yes. Where the narrative feels like a seamless transition between and you you can constantly follow. And if you do, if you do some flashbacks, they're very overt. Yes. This is the complete opposite of that. Again, it is cinematic impressionism. And it once you get used to it, once you bring it just to it, I think it works really well. Yeah. But it, it is it is a little if you come from a Hollywood style, it takes you a while. Mm-hmm. And even at the end there's everyone's where you're like, wait, is he really saying this or is he thinking? I mean, there's a girl yeah. at the end that he's been dreaming about. Mm-hmm. And then she shows up for real. You're like, wait, is she really there or is he escaping out of this the scene he was uncomfortable with with this fake girl? Yeah. The childhood flashbacks are fairly easy to ascertain. Yeah. Okay, he's remember he's having a memory about this thing that happened or when he used to go to bed at night in this yeah. village. But yeah, there's sometimes where he's still an adult interacting with like a fantasy version of 
events or something. And yeah, that was an example with his vision of an ideal woman. That Carla? He, I think that was her name. Yeah. Yes. That for a long time, wasn't sure if she was real or not. It's funny. In Roger Ebert's review, he says he never had a problem telling. I'm like, okay, well, apparently you're just some more. Uh, I mean, he's, he's Roger a lot more films. He's he's seen a lot more films. He's just in some ways more film literate. And this is again, if you, this is not something that you're used to, it might take you even longer to get into. I think after we got through the beginning, it was easier to catch him up. There's only one or two times where like, wait, but generally some of the fantasies are very over the top. Yeah, <laughs> which we might get to. And the childhood stuff's pretty easy. Yeah. So it's not it's not horrible, but it is a little jarring to not have any transition at all. Yeah. The kind of walking, people walking in and out of his vision and like, wait a minute, is that really? Or like, just kind of the way the transition between scenes is like very fluid sometimes. Well, and I guess it's even like, you know, sometimes he'll say, hey, for this film, we need the the priest. Yeah. And then he'll go talk to the priest and like, wait, are we seeing the film he wants to make? Are we doing what we actually want to do? Yeah, that's one thing I guess we haven't really touched on that much yet, because him making a film is almost direct commentary for the film that you are currently watching. Yes, sometimes it's very film. direct. Yeah. He had brought in this writer to help him work through some of his ideas, and the writer's commentary usually is referencing some scene that you just saw. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that opening intro with your fantasy, your, your dreams, all that stuff. That's just, those ideas have been done before, or like... And also sometimes his uh, producer will have a similar role. It's like, mm-hmm. you got to give the audience something to understand, to latch onto. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to know, are we watching a film about a director trying to make a film, or are we watching the film he's making? Yeah. And sometimes the scene can be either. I mean, at least my memory. A lot of commentators about this talk as if the film that he's making is the film that we're watching. Which I can completely see. I mean, it's a little bit, to put in, in I guess, layman's terms, like the very end of the Muppet movie. Okay. When sure. they're seeing the Rainbow Connection and like, wait, is this part, is, are they practicing for the movie or is this the actual end of the movie singing to us? And it's both. <laughs> kind of both, yeah. And I think the whole movie's like that. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of meta narrative, even if certain other things aren't directly copying it, inspired a lot of things that came, because it, it occurred to me this week, a film that I made as a student that is probably closest to this was called Kusos of Fury, which Kusos is a Japanese word meaning daydream. Mm -hmm. And it was literally a a guy trying to trade. He found himself in a Kung Fu movie trying to figure out how did I get here? And what the the story actually is, is him working through his series of daydreams about pop culture stuff, basically, and how one connected to the next. But I hadn't seen this movie. I just, it was one of those like, it's in our culture. This some of this idea is in our cultural language of yeah. like a story about making a story, because it, or a stream of thought consciousness. The, the whole like art imitates life, life imitates art. Like this is the archetypal like version of art and life are intertwined. Yeah, and whether people have seen or not, it is you know whether it influences them directly. It just like the archetypal best version. I don't know best, but I mean. Cinemaphiles say this is like the way you do it. The top level of this sort of art and life are fluid. Yeah, it's quintessential. And whether or not it, it may be your favorite, it, it is certainly a uh, a pinnacle of that kind of storytelling. Yeah. The other interesting thing watching, at least from our point of view, was that the worldview is very different than we're used to. Because it has that sort of, a, I'm going to call it European, okay. sense of like, so he has a mistress, but he's apparently had lots of these affairs. Mm-hmm. And his wife's married to him and... Well, one of his mistresses has a husband who knows he, I mean, it's just yeah, all it, over the place. It was strange early on. I was, wasn't was sure if they were going to treat this as like kind of just a normal thing. Because sometimes, yeah, it seems like European films do that. It's like, yeah, people have mistresses yeah. and, and they sleep around all the time. 
and I didn't know if like the wife would be like, yeah, fine, do what you yeah. got to do. But no, she was very bitter about it. I think we were supposed to take her bitterness seriously, like yeah. have compassion for her. The it was funny. the The director, the main character, just wanted her to just get along. But I don't think the audience is going to necessarily empathize with him. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's also strange because like the main character is hard to like. He's a fascinating character, mm-hmm. but he's also hard to like. Yeah, he's like the entire movie showing about basically just on display all his insecurities and flaws and grumpy, you know, like everything that's wrong with him. Yeah. He says he desperately wants to make, he wants to say something with his movie, but he's lost sight of what he actually wants to say. Mm-hmm. And as a creative, I can empathize with yeah. that. Like the, the desire to create is sometimes stronger than my ability to articulate something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in podcasting, we can just talk and that's easy. But, but when you're when wanting you to form to, something on purpose. Yeah. When you're wanting to write a novel or make a film. And I make mean, it say something important. And, yeah. I, and then he's stuck in that idea that he needs to say something important because people are expecting him to say something important. Yes. That there's the weight of trying to be new and meaningful. I mean, and the hard thing, it's hard to be meaningful when you have to be meaningful. <laughs> when you're being forced to, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of commercial push. Yeah, and this is something that is, again, reflecting Fellini. Fellini was just coming off the heels of a very successful film. I think it's called La Dolce Vita, if I remember right. And so that's, again, he's a And we, we certainly see the pull of the director where lots of people are coming up to him. It's like, hey, can you make a decision about this? Hey, what's, uh, what can you make a, a casting choice on this yeah. one? And how much should the spaceship, how tall do you want the spaceship to be? And why do we need a spaceship? Yeah. That, why are you building this what, thing? What, tell us what the story is about. I'm, I'll, I'll get to that. I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, the autobiographical stuff is interesting. But at the same time, it's a little vague what he's actually trying to say by the end. Perché non sa voler bene? Perché non è vero che una donna possa cambiare un uomo? Perché non sa voler bene? E perché soprattutto non mi va di raccontare un'altra storia bugiardo? Perché non sa voler bene? So what do you think? I, there's an important dialogue at the end. We watch it subtitled. Yeah. That I must have missed something because then there was like a change and we get our ending, our resolution. And I, I had a hard time figuring out what, it, what the change was. Sure, and I will. And we can't. Well, I don't know if it's spoiler issue. Well, I I do want to mention that if you want, if you really completely want to avoid spoilers, maybe skip ahead at this point to when you hear the music, and we'll, we'll transition to talking about our final thoughts about it. Well, we got questions though. Oh, question. Well, anyway, we'll have a music transition yeah. to talk about questions. Uh, but it, it's hard to talk about the worldview without talking about the ending because he doesn't really figure anything out until the very end. Yeah, and, and the movie's not really about the ending. The movie's about the experience. Yeah, so. it's more about yeah, the spoiler's exper- not that big of a deal in this movie, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But that being said, that's your one warning. So he, he comes almost on the verge of calling the whole thing off. He contemplates committing suicide or at or, least artistic suicide it's hard to know yeah like, like just ending the whole thing it's hard yeah. yeah it's hard to know how to read that exactly um and then there's another la- conversation with the writer who says basically yeah you're right to cancel it you know it's it's better not to say anything at all rather than like muddying the the air with stuff that's untrue or imperfect or something it, it's a very nihilistic sort of thing and the director kind of has this moment of it's like he's listening to the words and you can tell he wants to do the opposite of it. And what that opposite seems to be is kind of this embrace of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, this kind of, you wind up seeing him choreograph a dance with all the other characters in the movie, except for the ideal woman, someone pointed out, which I thought oh, was interesting. interesting. I haven't verified that for myself. But he goes to his wife first. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think. And, but it's, it's one of those things, it's hard to know whether is this like, 
Is that embrace of life? Is that a, a change of personality? Like, oh, I've decided, or is it like another fantasy? Yeah, I think that's why the, it was unfulfilling. They couldn't figure out how seriously to take it. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, here's from the Turner Classic Movies site. They quote Fellini. This is an interesting commentary on what he thought the core idea behind the movie was. He said, quote, self-acceptance can occur only when you've grasped that the only thing that exists is yourself, your true deep self, which wants to grow spontaneously, but which is fettered by inoperative lies, myths, and fantasies that propose an unattainable morality or sanctity or perfection, all of it brainwashed into us during our defensive childhood. So if I'm translating my own, how I heard it, basically, you just have to accept yourself flaws and all and not worry about trying to be perfect. anything else. Yeah. Which I'm not sure I, I don't like as a Christian, but I can the movie I can see saying that. Yeah, it, it, when I said earlier, it was a bit um, not very complimentary toward Catholic Church. It was it kind of has this like, like it's interesting. He seeks advice, but it, it, the all the cardinal can say is like, no, just follow the church. The church yeah. is the only means of salvation. So yeah, it doesn't seem like he finds a lot of encouragement there. He wants everything. He's trying to, in some ways, he's trying to relieve himself of guilt, both with the women who you know. He, his past. Yeah, his and, past and his past and his kind of this Catholic guilt he has. Mm-hmm. And the end, I guess, it's just like, it's not so much a getting rid of guilt as just saying, eh, it doesn't matter. I mean, at least according to that quote. In some yeah, ways. it's what it sounds kind of like, which, I mean, we were talking the other day, I'm like, what we don't really know here is like, if you have the self-acceptance of your flaws, but it also seems to be an embrace of the people who are with you. But does that mean that you're going to actually try to meet their needs because the thing the reason why Guido is not entirely likable is because he kind of tries to push all his wife's complaints under the rug yeah he basically just wants to not either not deal with or or seems almost unable to deal with it in some ways like he's like this is how I am I can't stop harassing me for yeah. just doing what I do yeah and it's unclear where the director would go from this last moment it's like yeah okay great you didn't embrace nihilism good for you but does that mean you're going to become a better man yeah I don't know like we said in our instant reactions it is morally ambiguous yes yes All right. I'm sure we could talk about the movie for another hour or so because that sort of movie. But we should probably move things along. (laughs) Okay. I'll go ahead and start with a a silly question for you. Okay. All right. It's called Eight and a Half. Uh Very obscure, succinct title. I want you to give it a full blown anime title. (laughs) And anime. You know how anime just say like ridiculous, like, you know, the time I died and became reincarnated as a slime. You know, give me the full, long, overlong title. Let me think here. Um, I forgot what movie I was going to make, and now I'm having flashbacks to my dysfunctional childhood. That is amazing. I would watch that anime. <laughs> <laughs> and they would call it that, legitimately. Yeah, that's okay. what I'll go with. Okay, okay, very nice. Okay, so uh, since you asked me that, I have a title question for you. <laughs> if you were to apply the title to something in the movie, so keep you have to keep the same title, it's still okay. eight and a half, but it actually is eight and a half something in the movie. What what would that refer to? <laughs> Gut reacted eight and a half women. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because it just, there's a scene, guys, it's probably the most surreal, comedic, but like also sad Where he's kind of fantasizing all the women in his life and basically a harem. Yeah, and it's, 
And it's not like explicit. I mean, the, I had to give props to this movie. Like nothing's explicit visually. No, that's true. I mean, it could have been. It could have been. But it's kind of funny because they have this rule that if you're over 26, you got to go upstairs and live apart from all everyone else. And his wife's like dressed like Cinderella. It's it's a ridiculous scene. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's clever. It's, yeah. Anyways. So, okay. Okay. I think your gut reaction is yeah. probably yeah. accurate. Okay. The second question, I'm not sure I buy it, but I'm curious because if you notice, all the people who love it the best are directors. Mm. I don't know if I mean this exactly, but I'll just ask, is the movie narcissistic? And if not, what keeps a super personal story like this from, how do you keep it from being just navel-gazing? I would say no. For me, part of that is because it's about a director, and we see a lot of the director's flaws. Okay. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that, yeah, you're you're being honest about your struggles and your insecurities, but I guess some people could say, well, you're just trying to make people feel sorry for you. And I guess that's a poss- that is a risk that you're running with a story like this. And like, but something this per- at least whether it's actual personal or just fake personal, does it have a limited audience then? Well, something this avant-garde is going to be a limited audience, but I'm not entirely certain that's a bad thing. I think sometimes some stories are very personal and they're going to make sense to people who have the same struggles and maybe not to some people who don't. But I don't think that inherently means it's not a story worth telling. Okay, I agree. I, I can get that. It just because it's such a different sort of place to get a story than we get in a Hollywood thing that wanted to kind of analyze sure. that no, setup. It's, it's a fair question because I do think stories about show business can come off as self-congratulatory in yeah. some ways. But this one, I think, is more about an inner psychology and a search for meaning. And mm-hmm. I think that raises it above. And the, the search for me, I think, is what makes it keep resonating with people. Yeah, I suspect so. Especially creative people. Yeah. Because it just that's where it's set up as. Yeah, I concur. So here's my question for you, Nick. Okay. Does this movie pass the Bechtel test? Oh, which I think I know, but define for the audience. So I believe, for, if I remember correctly, the Bechtel test is do... The women in the story have a defined motivation beyond a man. They talk about important things besides the man. Yeah. Yes. Mo- yes. Yeah. Motiv- yeah things, <sighs> interesting things, motivations besides wanting to please a man or wanting to have a man's attention or that sort of thing. I'm trying to think because most of the relationship with the women are all basically rotate around Guido. I mean, mm. his wife, his mistress, the wife's friend. Because though it's talking about meaning, everything's in relation to him. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't know that it does, actually. I did just... A, one possible exception occurred to me. That might be the um, the actress. Well, maybe either the actress who, who's trying to get from him. All she really wants to know from him is what's this part that she wants to play. Okay. Okay. I guess, yeah, I, had, I wasn't thinking about her. But she does... She really doesn't care. But then is it really about her career or in the context of this movie? Yeah. Is it really just... About him. him. I, yeah. I, mean, the, I mean, the problem is the entire movie rotates like like the sun. I mean, it rotates around Guido like like the plants rotate around the sun. I mean, yeah. everything is drawn into his orbit, so yeah. it's hard to... Yeah. And, and it's not even quite a fair... I mean, it is so focused on just his interactions with everyone. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's not a bad thing, No, not a bad thing. Whoever your main is. character is, your main character. Yeah. That's fine. I guess the other possible exception is whoever he talks to, the, the ideal woman who we weren't sure for a while yeah. is real or not. She's interesting, the, the one who most repudiates his... You need love. Like, you need love. It's like, it can't just be about you sort of yeah. mentality. That's true. She seems less affected by who he is than everyone else does. Yeah. 
Which is interesting. It yeah, is. I, she crossed my mind as possibly. And it was hard to, I guess the fact that he was so in love with her clouded my judgment. I guess she doesn't actually care that much. Well, she kind of, I don't know. It's hard to. Yeah, yeah. She's a strange character. She's so vague. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tough. That's an interesting question. Yeah. All right, Tim, do we like the movie? You know, I enjoyed it, I think, maybe more than anyone else in the room. I don't know how, how you felt in the end, but it was very engaging. A complaint I would have is that I do think it's a little long. Like, I remember- mm, I would the, agree, it is a little long. Around the two-hour mark, I was like, okay, is this, are we almost through? Like, there's a lot, and because you have to be very focused to try to keep up with everything, I feel. And, and it there's a lot of scenes of talking about, I mean, they're important, but it just takes, everything takes time. Yeah. To, to, to do it this way. I find, like even talking here, I like it more the more I talk about it. Like it's one of those movies that in some ways are as enjoyable to discuss as to watch. Oh, sure. I don't know how often I would go want to watch it again. Yeah. So it's not like, oh man, I want to just sit down and watch a two and a half hour Italian abstract film. But it is, it was com- very compelling to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to talk about with other people who have seen it. And I think if you did see it a second time, you would probably glean more things more, out more of More stuff. It. So I, I will say that I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do we recommend to anyone or just select audiences, though? I do recommend that all casual movie fans watch a European film or a couple to yeah. get a feel. It, again, it's good to get film viewing experience out of what you're used to and seeing different ways people can use this medium. It's like... Going to an art museum and seeing, oh, wow, you can do this with paint. Mm-hmm. And let me stare in fr- sit in front of this for a little while. That being said, I don't know that I would start with eight and a half. I, I think it's, if you if you have sort of a fondness or an interest or you've seen, you know, you watch The Prisoner, you're like, oh, I kind of like some of this surreal stuff. I could recommend it. But I think for the, like. The super casual. No, not, I don't think. Like, probably my, not. my wife didn't much care for the abstract running around stuff. And yeah, it's a, it's a certain. Yeah, I don't know that the casual movie fan needs to go watch this one. Yeah. If you want to check out some Federico Fellini, I do recommend La Strada. That was a very interesting film. You could also try The Bicycle Thief, although that one is brutal. La Strada is pretty sad, too. But, I mean, if you're going to watch one of these, expect it to be serious more often than not. I mean, I enjoyed Rules of the Game, which is a French film. Mm -hmm. Also, The Seventh Seal is a classic Swiss film by Igmar Bergman gets referenced all over the place, including Animaniacs. Okay. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, this one, everyone should go watch a European film, but maybe not this one as the first. Yes, I agree. All right. Well, that is our episode on Eight and a Half from 1963. Subscribe, if you haven't for some reason, subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. We're also on social media, Facebook and Twitter, which I think it's still that. Maybe it's X now. (laughs) We're recording this in the summer, so who knows what it'll be by the time this episode comes out. It will be called Eight and a Half. (laughs) Um, That's how many characters you get. Uh, (laughs) Half the punctuation. (laughs) <laughs> um. Anyways, but yeah, and then enjoy our mothership podcast, Derail Trains of Thought. Visit us at derailtrainsofthought.com. 
Um, next time, we are watching uh, a movie from 1973, The Sting. The Sting. So this is a classic Keeper film, but also so a very uh, a wide appeal, but also an Oscar winner. So I think you will enjoy it. All right. Till next time, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.